Good morning, everybody. I am so glad that you guys are here. I hope you're in the mood and ready to go. Before we get started, first of all, a special welcome to all the visitors. If if this is your first time here, maybe second or third, and and you're new to us, I just want to let you know how much it means to us that you gave up part of your day and came to, to share time with us. It is so important to us that you feel welcome here that you feel like a part of this family. When the scripture talks about the body of Christ, the body of Christ is us as a family. This church is not the building. It's not anything like that. It's the people in it. And so that's why we build in things like five-minute greeting time, which if you're new can be the longest five minutes of your life. I get that. But eventually you see where Gabe's got to like try and get people seated because it's great to catch up with family. It's great to, to have friends and you get to catch up on them. And that's really why we gather here. A message is fantastic, but we are supposed to gather together in one place to encourage and to lift up and to share each other's burdens. And you can't do that if you come in and high five somebody and sit down and listen to a message and then leave before it's over so that you can get out of the parking lot quickly. So we build in those times purposely to make that. So All that to say, I'm super glad that you guys are here. Um, Before we get into the message, I want to take a moment and just recognize um, Memorial Day weekend. Uh, As as you heard Pastor Jack say, you know, people confuse Veterans Day with Memorial Day. Memorial Day is a time where we, it's not mourn, and it's more than remember. I think it rises as far in my mind as to celebrate the sacrifice of those who have given themselves for us. Much as every weekend when we take communion, we celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. And he gave himself for us knowing that some of us wouldn't even care to know him. Some of us would never know him. Some of us would outright reject him and he gave himself for us anyway. And it's that kind of sacrifice that those men and women in our armed forces give. They sign up for that. They go into it knowing that there are people back home who don't appreciate what they do, who don't even understand what they do. And more than that, they are antagonistic against what they do. They're not only not thankful, they're angry at those who give themselves for their freedom. But so I wanna take a moment and and just be thankful but be celebratory of the sacrifice of those men and women. So would you just join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that your son, Jesus Christ, modeled to us what ultimate love and ultimate sacrifice looks like. And we have tens of thousands of men and women who have given themselves in that same attitude of love, in that same attitude of loving one another to the point of putting yourself in harm's way, not knowing what will happen. But they did it. Whether they did it gladly or not, they did it bravely because they put themselves in harm's way. And they knew that's where they were going. And Father God, we thank you for their sacrifice. We lift them up. We just ask that your blessing has poured out abundantly on them, even more so, and then on their families, those loved ones, those relatives who have suffered the loss of a loved one. 
We know the ripples of that extend forever. And Lord, I just pray that your hand of blessing is on them as well. And that all of us on a day, a weekend, especially like this one, but all the time, we remember the sacrifice of those who gave themselves so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we have. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, welcome to our series on spiritual warfare. If you are new here or maybe missed last weekend, last weekend we kind of set the stage We talked about what angels are, what demons are, what spiritual warfare is, what it isn't. We're going to go even deeper into that today. But since I know that we do have a lot of of visitors here today, I want to kind of just recap really quick what spiritual warfare looks like. And we're really going to jump into that during the message today. But spiritual warfare primarily is between forces of good and the forces of evil, right? We go further than angels and demons, between God, Jesus, and Lucifer, Satan. That's, those are our key players in this spiritual warfare, but there's one more key player that we overlook a lot, and that's us. We have a role to play in this spiritual warfare. It's not our job just to sit back and watch. Let somebody else do it. Read about it, get taught on the weekends, and then go off on our lives and forget that it exists. It exists all around us, and the stakes are too high for us to pretend like we don't see it. As I've said many times, and I'll say it again, we lose 100% of the battles we don't realize we're in. If you don't know you're in a battle, if you don't understand that you're in a battle, you're going to lose that battle because we have an active role to play. And so, again, quick recap, angels and demons. Angels and demons started out as the same thing. They were created beings. Father God created angels to serve him, to worship him, to serve him, but also to serve us. So angels have this role of of worshiping the Father, of praising him, of serving him, but also being his messengers to us being his messengers to us, being guardians to us in many cases. And in general, to doing God's will here on earth, whatever he needs done. Now, demons are not a separate creature. Demons are not a separate being. They started out as angels. But a whole separate teaching, when Lucifer fell because of pride, he fell into sin which illustrates to us a commonly asked question, do angels and demons have free will? Can they do whatever they want? Yes, they can. And through the spirit of pride, Satan fell away and took one-third of all the angels with him. This is where the battle in that realm lies. So that's where we are. Satan is an angel, was an angel, became what we call a demon, but the same, Satan was a cherub, um, the same, same creation with the same plan. Father God even said he was exalted above the others. He was the greatest, but he took that to heart a little too much. And because of his pride, he fell away in rebellion. So that's kind of sets the stage for what we're doing. And we need to understand that. 
Because again, we have a role to play, but because this happens all day, every day. So the first scripture I want to show you is 1 Peter 5, 8. A lot of you probably recognize this. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay, that sounds really scary. The devil prowling around like a roaring lion. Where this comes from, actually at the time this was written, was very common for shepherds to be out in the, out in the fields outside of the towns and cities guarding their flocks. And the verbiage that's used here reminds them of the lions that prowl around at night trying to pick off the strays from the herd. And that's a great illustration for us. Because although the enemy does attack head on sometimes, most often he's very sneaky. He's very deceptive. He may come at you head on, but as he does that, he's also sneaking around the back. The enemy is clever. And so what this reminds us of is be on your guard, especially in the middle of the night when you're tired and you just want to close your eyes. Figuratively, I'm not saying us, okay? Don't... Pastor Bob told me not to go to sleep. That's not what I'm saying. But those shepherds who let down their guard, who think, okay, everything's safe. I've kind of looked around. This is a safe place. I've been here before. I know this is good. I'm going to go ahead and catch a quick nap. That's when the enemy comes in. That's when a lion comes in and he picks off those strays in the herd. So that's what this is meant to remind us of. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. We can't afford to take a day off. We can't afford to not understand the battle that we're in. So that's why we're here. This week then, we're going to take a really hard look at what this invisible battlefield is. Okay, the title of the series, Angels and Demons, and that's my bad graphic, but it says the invisible battlefield. Where is this invisible battlefield? We're going to talk about that because we need to understand the rules of the fight if we're going to be in it. So probably the most dramatic biblical instance that kind of shows us what spiritual warfare, warfare in the spiritual realms looks like, we find in 2 Kings. Now let me set the stage before we put the scripture up. Actually, I don't have that scripture. I'll read this one. But let me set the stage here. This is Israel, the nation of Israel, at war with the latest in a series of of wars and battles that they're going to fight. This one happens to be with what we would call Syria. The Bible calls it Aramea, or some, some translation just say Aram. So the king of Aram and the king of Israel, okay, they're obviously at odds and they're fighting one another. The stage for this is that the king of Aram is frustrated because it seems like he's got a spy in his midst because every time he makes a move to try and attack Israel, Israel seems to know. They seem to be one step ahead, and they always, they always find a way to counter that attack. And the king of Aram is incensed. Like, how is this happening? What is going on? This is where we are. So what he finds out through sending spies and, and things like that and informers, he finds out that the nation of Israel has a secret weapon. And that secret weapon is a man named Elisha. Okay, scripture just calls him a holy man. He's a prophet. Elisha 
is reading the king of Aramaeus, reading his mail. He's intercepting his messages straight off the bat, and he's telling through prophetic gifts, he's telling the king of Israel what's happening before it happens so he can counter. If you'd like to know more about the role of the prophetic in spiritual warfare, Pastor Gabe is going to teach a message on that here uh, in one of these upcoming weeks. So be ready for that. But bottom line, the king of Syria is so frustrated, he decided, I'm going to send my entire army to try and capture this one guy. Sends a whole army for one guy. And so that's what he, do, what he does. And we pick this up in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. So listen, I'll read this to you. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, Okay, so he wakes up early, he goes out of the tent, and he's looking out to see what's going on. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered. This is Elisha speaking now. So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Imagine you're the servant. You're the little servant of Elisha, and you're seeing hills full of chariots and horses, and you're freaking out. And here Elisha is saying, those that are with us are more than with them. Imagine you're that servant. You're like, okay, where are they? Because I'm not seeing them, Elisha. Where are they? Verse 17, then Elisha prayed, and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's a cool picture. That's a cool picture. That is Elisha seeing things in the spiritual realm that his servant couldn't see. See, the eyes of the flesh, which the servant was using, relying on, well, here's what I know. There's a lot of them, and I don't see that many of us. He's seeing with the eyes of his flesh what he knows and what he understands. The eyes of the flesh, in this case, saw only danger. Saw only danger and peril and fear, and what do we do? But the eyes of the spirit that Elisha was using saw salvation in that instance. That's the comfort we have when our eyes are open to the spiritual realm. It shouldn't be scary because the enemy is around us. Scripture promises us that. There's plenty of scripture that says the enemy's out to get you all the time, every day, and he'll do anything he can. If we stop there, that's kind of discouraging. It's kind of scary. But with an understanding of spiritual warfare and our authority in Jesus Christ, his power over the spiritual realm, our eyes should see salvation when we're under attack. When we're under attack, we should not focus on the attack. We should focus on the salvation that is there to us. Today's battlefield, though, is not quite that dramatic in many cases. It still happens and I'm kind of glad I don't see it swirling around me all the time because it'd be hard to do what we have to do every day. But we understand that it's there. But our battlefield, the one that we deal with most often, this invisible battlefield, is right here. It's between our ears. It's a battle 
for your thoughts. It's a battle for your mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the God of this world, small g, notice, okay? That's Satan. That's who they're talking about. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. See, Satan's just a liar. He lies. He whispers to you. He can get you to think things that aren't true. He can't make you do anything, but he can make you make poor decisions based on the lies that he's telling you. That word light right there, by the way, translates, see the light of the gospel. That light in Greek translates as algazo, and it means to see clearly or to discern. So it's actually an active thing. So that you may not discern the power of the glory of Christ. So my paraphrase is that they might not understand the power of the gospel, the very power of the gospel over the spiritual realms. And we need to understand that, and thus this entire message. Those who are blind to that power of the gospel are going to rely on their earthly tools to fight those battles. And what I mean by earthly tools, when you're under attack by the devil, and he's lying to you, and he's causing you to fear, and he's causing you to despair, and he's causing you to, to have anger. We use earthly tools. Now, I'm not disparaging every earthly tool. They're a tool, but they can't be our primary tool. What I'm talking about is um, self-help books, internet, different worldly advice on how we should handle these things. And there is value to those things without a doubt. There is value, but the problem is is that when we focus on those things and we're using earthly tools to fight a spiritual battle, we get wounded. And our wounds look like this, offense, hatred, anger, unforgiveness. I've been hurt by you or that person or that person, and I am never going to let it happen again. So we put up this wall around ourselves. We put up this wall to keep ourselves from getting hurt, this wall of offense. But guess what else walls keep out? They keep out the good too. Walls don't discriminate on what they keep out. This is the result of using earthly tools to fight a spiritual battle. So we need to be careful. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. This is Paul writing this letter to the church in Corinth. And he's using this term strongholds down here because they would be familiar with that. A little background, the, the city of Corinth was a seaport. Okay, a lot of people coming in and out. It was kind of a waypoint for people to stop for supplies and things like that. But it was also a really valuable um, piece of property, piece of territory that was constantly getting attacked. And so what they did is they built this large wall and defenses around the city. Okay, this stronghold around the city to protect themselves. 
And so Paul is using this imagery when he writes to them to tell them, look, the divine power of the weapons we fight with can even demolish this stronghold that you're putting so much of your faith in. Sometimes we put so much faith in the wrong thing. We think it's going to protect us, and that lulls us into a sense of security that can be dangerous. But interesting fact here, the word strongholds there, in, in most translations, it's the Greek word okaroma, which means fortress, stronghold, defense, right? Paul, though, in some translations, especially the earliest ones, used the word oxaroma. And oxaroma translates a little differently. It means false sense of security. Interesting to know, and the reason Paul writes it like this is because Paul, as some of you know, was from a town in Syria, by the way, called Cilicia. That was like his hometown. Cilicia also had impenetrable walls around it at one point. About 100 years before the time uh, where Paul is writing this, Cilicia was attacked by the Roman emperor Pompey, and he flattened those walls like they were nothing. They thought these walls were going to protect them. They thought they were impenetrable. But in fact, when faced with overwhelming forces from Pompey, they just fell like nothing, like they were tissue paper. And this is the word Paul uses for this. How, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish what you think is going to protect you. That's important to know. We have to be able to tell the difference between false protection and real protection. And it's not easy, but I'm going to give you some tips to do that. Strongholds, walls are a way for the enemy to lull you to sleep, to think that you're safe. And we take those on all the time. Sometimes a stronghold, in fact, the most common stronghold that we see when we're doing deliverance ministry is pride. Pride in our own abilities, pride in our knowledge, pride in our spiritual discernment. How many times have many of us said the words, we've said it to ourselves, or maybe even to somebody else, I can spot a phony pretty quick. I can tell when so, I have a, here's one you won't hear in church all the time, I have a great BS detector. <laughs> it means Bible study. I have a great Bible study protector. Were you guys thinking, oh, I can't, this is church. I can tell who's been to a Bible study and who has not by their depth of, no. all right. Moving on, we're going to erase that from the recording. You won't find that on the... If you've ever said that to yourself, though, you're exhibiting a spirit of pride. You're exhibiting a spirit of pride that says, I can figure this out. I am smart enough, I am clever enough to be able to avoid this or to be able to spot it and then to know what to do about it. Church, that's a spirit of pride. And that spirit of pride will lull us to sleep. It makes us vulnerable. So what does this spiritual warfare look like? Let me ask, let me ask some of you. If I, if I just said, what does spiritual warfare look like to you? Let me be more specific. What did it look like today? Anybody have an episode of spiritual warfare today? Take turns. Cheryl? That's a good one. Did you guys hear that? 
Satan trying to keep you from church by making you feel like you're too sick or too tired and you can't get up and go to church. That's an excellent example because that could very well be spiritual warfare. You know what's not? You walk out to the parking lot and your tire's flat. You walk out to the parking lot to get in your car and the battery's dead because you left the light on last night. Your tire's flat because there's construction going on next to your neighborhood and you ran over a nail. Are those spiritual warfare? What happens in your mind, though, is. What happens in your mind, that's where most spiritual warfare happens. But it's probably, in many cases, it's even more subtle than that. Because I'd be willing to bet that Cheryl recognized pretty soon on, this is what's happening and I'm not letting it happen. But a lot of times, it's way more subtle than that. In fact, I love C.S. Lewis, and I have another quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. Meaning the safest road to hell is you won't even know you're there. It's so smooth and easy, and before you know it, you look around and go, why am I here? How did I get here? This is what he's trying to say because it's much more subtle than that. Outright, full frontal assault is much easier to spot. And the enemy does that, but he wants you to know that he's coming at you other ways too. I also quoted from Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu, ancient Chinese philosopher, 5th century B.C., and he wrote this manual called the, called the Art of War. And the Art of War is basically a manual on how to fight battles. It's actually still used today. But Sun Tzu said this about warfare. He said, all warfare is based on deception. All warfare is based on deception. Hence, when we're able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must appear inactive. When we're near, we must make the enemy believe we are far. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. The enemy uses this manual perfectly because we either fail to recognize impending danger or we assign danger when there isn't any. Both are equally problematic for a Christian. Both will derail us and sidetrack us from what our true mission is. They keep us more focused on the danger, real or imagined, and not on our mission. So either way, the enemy's equally happy. He loves it when we ascribe to him all kinds of evil and malevolence and wrongdoings that he has nothing to do with. He's more than happy to say, that was me. That burnt toast this morning, that was me. Not me, Satan. But he's more than happy to let you think that. He is not that powerful, church. But we can underestimate the danger of these things, especially when it comes to things like false teaching. A false teaching is much more than just listening to a pastor and, and I might misspeak or I might say something. I might say something that's outright blasphemy. I might. I really try hard not to, I promise. But that's one kind of false teaching, but there's much more subtle 
false teaching that goes around the world. I'm going to talk to you about some of that here in just a second. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 say this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. This is predicting. Does that sound like today by any chance? When you're outright mocked and called intolerant, any one of a number of epithets will get thrown at you if you want to pull out the Bible and say, this is my manual for what's right and wrong. This is how I live my life. Oh, I can't believe what a dinosaur you are. And don't even get me started on dinosaurs. But they want to hear what they want to hear. And sometimes when they hear false teaching, it sounds good. Just like the devil all the way back in the Garden of Eden when he's deceiving Eve. He didn't lie to her outright. He said, surely you won't really die if you eat that apple. God just knows you're going to be like him and you're going to know everything. What's so bad about that? To which Eve goes, You know what? You're right. He wouldn't put it there if he didn't want me to have it. That's deception at the very earliest stages. Here's what some more deception looks like, though. I'm going to talk about a few examples here that are counterfeits. Many, many people have been led to believe that they're harmless, but they're not. And I want to explain it to you. The very first one, you can take that scripture down, is Freemasons. What do you think of when I say Freemasons or Freemasonry? Do you think of that old Uncle Charlie that you have that used to go hang down at the Freemasons Lodge all the time? They sat around, they drank beer. My Uncle Charlie was a pretty decent guy. Okay. What about a grandfather, a father maybe, that was a part of a Mason's Lodge? I can tell you that those initiates, those lower-level initiates at the Mason's Lodge have no idea the depth of what the truth really is and things like that. So you can't look at somebody that's a a lower-level, and there's 33 levels that you achieve in Mason's, right? And each level, they reveal something new to you. You ever heard that story about the frog in the boiling water? Okay, you slowly heat the water, and before you know it, the frog cooks, and he doesn't even realize because it's happened so slowly. This is what happens with masons. And at each level, at the first level, you're just hanging out with a bunch of buds down at the lodge. Second level, same thing, but they give you just a little bit more info. And as you go through, you learn more and more and more to where it never really screams out in your mind, there's deception going on here. But let me give you a little bit of information about Freemasons. First of all, they say they're a Christian organization. They have a Bible. There's actually a Mason's Bible. Let me give you a couple of things they do. First of all, they do take communion. At the Mason's Lodge, they will take communion. Most of the the rites, most of the orders take communion with white wine instead of red. Taking the truth, taking the gospel, what is holy, and twisting it just enough. Instead of doing bread, they also do crackers, most commonly this salt cracker. And salt crackers is symbolic 
of Satan. So they take communion with white wine and, and these salt biscuits or salt crackers. Now they do have their own Bible, but in that Bible, they don't call God Yahweh like we do. Okay, They use the term God, but their name for God is Jabulon or Yabulon. And what it stands for, it's a mashup of Yahweh and Baal and Ra, which is the Egyptian sun god. So their God, what essentially what they're saying is that God is whoever you want him to be. It's kind of a mashup. And as you go deeper into the levels, you find out that it's actually even worse than that. But at the beginning, they call God the great architect of the universe. Doesn't seem so bad. Okay, again, I've known Masons. Many of the fathers of our country were Masons. Masons have done many good things in the name of what they felt was right. They do use the Bible. They use the Koran. They use the Hindu Vedas. They use Confucian teachings, all of these interchangeably in what they teach. And ultimately, what their, kind of what their mantra is, is man is not sinful, but merely imperfect and therefore can redeem himself through good works. So you see the Masons doing all kinds of good things with the wrong motivation, but they're still good things. And this is, the, this is what we have with our Father God. He is all-powerful and all-sovereign, and he has said, I will use all things for the good of those who love me, right? He has said that. All things doesn't just mean for you. It means all things, anything that happens anywhere. I will use it for good. This is the power he has. So even misguided, misled people, and at the higher ranks, I would venture to say downright evil people because they know at that point, he can even use that for good. Let me go to another example. How about Wicca? Anybody heard of Wicca? Okay, Wicca is, is witchcraft, right? Now, Wicca, <coughs> excuse me, from their very own website, it says this. Wicca is a very peaceful, harmonious, and balanced way of life which promotes oneness with the divine and all which exists. Wicca is a deep appreciation and awe in watching the sunrise or sunset, the forest in the light of a glowing moon, a meadow enchanted by the first light of day. That sounds like, that sounds fun. What, does that sound bad? Does that sound evil? Okay, I try and do a lot on Instagram. I'm not as good as Gabe, but I'm trying to get better. And if you do Instagram, you know every now and then you'll get people who want to follow you. So they follow you, and the effort is kind of they want you to follow them back so that they can build up things. So I got a message on my Instagram page the other day that was from this. And it's hard to read right here, but it's from somebody, and their handle is Voodoo Spells. I don't know why they sent it to me. But voodoo spells, and here's what I found when I looked at their page right away. Seven rules of life. Make peace with your past so it won't disturb your future. What other people think of you is none of your business. The only person in charge of your happiness is you. Don't compare your life to others. Comparison is the thief of joy. Time heals almost everything. Give it time. Stop thinking so much. It's all right not to know the answers. And then number seven, smile. You don't own all the problems in the world. If you just read that, 
You're not gonna run screaming for the hills going evil, 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 right? Okay, a little new agey, but doesn't look dangerous. This is where the deception comes in. Because we see things like that, and we go, ah, that's a Wiccan, that's not so bad. And I think she's a little confused with her voodoo spells, because Wicca and voodoo are not the same thing. But you would read that and go, that's not so bad. My own son-in-law, I'll be honest with you, when, his, when one of his children was born, now they're not, they're not religious at all, they don't go to church, anything like that. When they asked him to fill out the religion on the birth certificate, he put Wicca, because he thought it sounded cool. This is where the deception comes in. We don't instantly see things like that and think, danger. Especially not when you see this and read from their website. It's just enjoying a sunset. Let me go further. Let's, nephew, what'd I say, son-in-law? I don't have a son-in-law. <laughs> Gabe's like, we have a son-in-law? <laughs> we need to talk more often. Some things have happened. <laughs> Thank you. We're going to erase that too. Let's go into voodoo. Let's move on quickly. A few years ago, I went to Haiti. And I went to Haiti to do ministry there, but also to directly confront evil in the form of voodoo. And this is a voodoo temple. This is actually my own picture. I was there. You go in that back room where that door is open and there's bats hanging from the ceiling. There's big pools of blood and different things that are in there. It's, it's an active voodoo temple that even the pastor of the church in this village called Doku Wan, um, the pastor of that village, when he was walking me around, he did a big circle, big arc around that building. And he said, no, 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 we don't. I went, Yes, we do. So you look at that and you go, okay, there's some symbols, bulls. It's not a great picture of the symbology on the side, but let me show you a close-up of the front. Look at that. That is a priest. He's got the, the halo, the, the uh, halo of a saint around him. He's carrying a cross. It's got Jesus on it. You would see that, and if you didn't look any further, you would go, Okay, well, they're, they're not so bad. They at least believe in Jesus and saints and all this kind of thing. And maybe they're misled in some of the other stuff, but they're not all evil, right? But they are deeply, deeply demonic. Deeply demonic. And what this amounts to is they'll say, hey, we'll take whatever power we can get from any source. If you think you're God and you think Jesus is powerful, okay, we'll put him up here and we'll invoke his power then to do our things. We know how that works out. But they're more than willing to take gods and power and ideas from everywhere and compile them all into theirs. But it's deeply, deeply demonic at its core. What about, don't put the slide up yet, what do you think of when I say Shriners. There's typically two things that people think of when, they, when I say Shriners. They either think of Shriners hospitals that spend millions of dollars on research, caring for children, doing, doing good works. You either think of that or you think of this. 
seems harmless. Seems like a bunch of guys just hanging around having a good time, right? Does anybody know someone who is a Shriner? Okay, many of us do. Many of us do, and you wouldn't look at them. These guys, they don't look too evil. They look like the car probably thinks they're evil, but they don't look evil. This is another example of those people who, when they get into it at the initiate level, they don't understand what they're getting into. And by the time you get deep enough into the organization to see what it's really all about, you're all in. But it's deception at its very base level. Let me tell you a couple things. First of all, Shriners believe that God is Allah. Okay? Allah is their God. And if you don't believe me, let me show you their symbol. This is a close-up of the Shriner symbol. You see that on everything. One, they vary the way it looks every little bit, but it's the crescent moon and the star of Islam. The scimitar is also very, very important to understand because what's the other most common symbol of Shriners? It's the fez, it's the hat, right? From, there's one. Now, I picked that one specifically because there's, not all of them say that. They all have the symbol on them, but that one says Isis and Knights of Mecca on it, as if you need a little encouragement to really understand. Let me read from you from the Shriners' own website, their description of what the Fez is all about. It says, the, again, Shriners' website, the Fez is one of the most recognizable symbols of Shriners International and was adopted as the Shriners' official headgear in 1872. Named after the city of Fez, Morocco, the hat represented the Arabian theme that the fraternity was founded on. Okay, sounds, sounds interesting. Arabian nights and camels and all kinds of fun stuff, right? Okay, here's a description. Now, I've done some research on this over the years, and I found a good description. I found it from multiple sources what this really means. This is actually from a site uh, from a ministry called RAM, Righteous Acts Ministries. They're actually based in, in Colorado Springs. But they have a great description of this historically. And here's what it says. In the 7th century, Muhammad ordered the destruction of all infidels, anyone who would not bow to Allah, including all Christians. As the Muslim warriors swept across North Africa, they came to a town called Fez, a Christian stronghold, and they killed everyone in the town, and they dipped their hats in the blood of the Christian martyrs. They wore these blood-red hats as a celebration of their victory and a warning to Christians to convert to Islam or die. You can verify that through any source that you want because that's what it goes back to. You can take that down. That's what the Fez comes to. So the deception is this. We see the guys riding their cars at parades. These throw out candy and stuff. Doesn't seem like a big deal. We look at Shriners hospitals and we go, they're doing a lot of good. But this is when we go back to the promise that God says, I will use all things for the good of those who are called according to my purpose. God will take anything, misguided, evil, or simply our mistakes, and he'll use them 
for good. That's the power of the gospel, and that's the power that Father God has. The devil does not have that kind of power. And so if you know somebody in any of these organizations or that do any of those things, that doesn't mean they're evil, but it does mean on some level that they're deceived. They've been misled. And at its core, these are evil organizations. But there's so many more. There's so many more of them. We could go on forever. And these, again, these are pretty visible, but what about some of the more subtle, even more subtle than that, attacks? Okay, what about, what about things like sickness and depression? What about flat tires and fights and burnt toast and all those sorts of things? Are they evil or are they simply just bad luck? If you're a Christian, is there even such a thing as bad luck? Or is it all the work of the devil? Is there anything such as good luck? Or is it all God's grace and mercy? This is a difficult question to ask, and I could go on for weeks talking about Scripture on how we can figure out what's good luck, bad luck, what's of the devil, what's from the Father, what's blessing, what's cursing. We could go into all these things, but I'm going to show you a better way for you to answer that question for yourself. I went to a website to try and figure out what I Googled was, um, can a Christian have bad luck? And I knew the answer to this, but I wanted to see what it said. This website starts going into quantum mechanics and the theory of probability to try and calculate the, and I'm like, like, who understands? Okay, you lost me at quantum. I think it has something to do with four somethings. But that's all I got. So I went, okay, there's, I'm going to forget that. I'm not smart enough to go down that road. Let's look at a different way. How can we know the difference? How can we know the difference between good and evil, good luck, bad luck? What we need to look at is any soldier fighting any battle anywhere will tell you their most valuable weapon is information. Their most valuable weapon in any battle they fight is information. And we have all the information we need through prayer and through the Holy Spirit. We have the ability to check in with headquarters anytime we want and get the movements of the enemy, get his schemes, get his plans, check in and see if something is safe, if something isn't safe, if something is evil, if something is not. We can check in Anytime we want. 1 John 4, 1 to 3 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into this world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. What this means is that when you, specifically when you're confronted with a false teacher, okay, you can ask the question, false teacher, or maybe it's just the voices in your head. Maybe it's that little thought that pops in, you know, the angel and demon sitting on your shoulders? And like, I'm hearing this, but I'm also hearing this. Here's how you can know test the spirits. Because here's one thing I know, that the kingdom of God and the spiritual realms work on a very finite set 
of rules. And those rules say things like the enemy cannot masquerade as God. If you want to believe he's God, he's more than happy to let you do that. But when he whispers to you, you can ask. We do deliverance ministry, and from time to time during a sozo session, I'll ask somebody. I'll say, hey, here's how it works. I'll, I'll ask a question, and I'll say, what is, what is the Father telling you about this? And then they tell me what they heard, and I help them to discern what that means. So I'll say, what does Father God think of you? Okay, and we know Scripture says that he loves us and we're his children and all that. But from time to time, I'll hear, he's disappointed in me. He thinks I need to be trying harder. He thinks I fail too much. And immediately what I'll say is I'll go, I want you to ask this question. Father God, is that word from you or did that come from somewhere else? And if it's from Father God, he'll reaffirm, that's me. But if it's not, what you get is crickets. The enemy lying low. Oosh, they're onto us. That's what you'll get. Test the spirits. Ask. If they'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, if they'll bow a knee to the king of kings, then they're from God. If they won't, then they're not. That's one of the simplest ways. The renewed mind that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ is the absolute only foolproof way to know good from bad, evil from blessing. That's the only way. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The good, the acceptable, and perfect is only identifiable through the renewed mind which we receive through Jesus Christ and through faith in him alone. That is our only defense, but this can be a double-edged sword sometimes. Having this information, having this power without the proper discernment, without knowing how to handle it can be a problem. It can be a double-edged sword. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2 says, If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. I want to ask you how much damage has been done to the purposes of God, to his plans. How many people have been either delayed or turned away from the kingdom of God because of somebody who has the gift of prophecy and all kinds of knowledge and all kinds of spiritual maturity, but they come at you like a bull in a china shop and they don't do it with love. And then my response is, why would I need that? Whatever it is you're selling, I don't want it because all it does is condemn and make me feel bad. I don't want that. Balance in this area is critical. There's another quote that I found. This is from a, a, a well-known theologian. It says this, we are not to forgo becoming more like Christ in our effort to defeat the enemy. There are many mean-spirited people who are rebuking the devil in Jesus' name. The power of Christ comes as we live out the purpose of Christ. Church, the reason that we're here, the reason that we're doing this battle anyway is specifically and 100% to share the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is throughout the world. That's why we're here. We're not to dig into a foxhole and just endure everything that comes our way and wait for the, 
for the rapture and it's time to go home. We are supposed to go out and do battle. We do battle because it's necessary to spread the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. The battle is not the point. The battle is what we have to endure to get to the point, to live out the fullness of our purpose, the one that God created for us since before we were born. That's our purpose. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and head up. So again, as as I conclude this, imagine that you're a soldier. You're fighting a battle. There's a hill, and you can't see beyond the hill, but you're pretty sure there's a whole bunch of enemy over there, and you don't know what their plans are. But you've got a radio, and with that radio, you can check in with headquarters. And you can say, what are they up to? How many are there? Are they moving? Are they, are they maybe even friendlies? Or are they enemies? What are they? You can check in with headquarters in the form of the Holy Spirit any time. And the only reason we don't is because the enemy wants to tell you, you got this. Why are you checking in with the Holy Spirit all the time? You've, got, you've done this a thousand times. Don't even bother checking in. You know what you're doing. Why wouldn't we check in? We wouldn't check in because the enemy would deceive us into thinking we know better. And that's deception at its core. So, prayer. Prayer is just, the word prayer just means talking to God. Talk to God, and he will guide you through all these things. Philippians 4, 6, 7 says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, listen to this, verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God comes through prayer. And the peace of God guards the battlefield for you. Pray to God, and he will help you win this battle. So very last thing, very last thing, and I alluded to it before, Romans 8, 28, says we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, that all things doesn't just mean things you do. That means everything. That all things in the Greek translates as all things. So that means when we look around the world and we see things like ISIS and we see things like like wars and, and horrific things going on around the world, that doesn't mean God allows them to happen or wants them to happen. But what it does mean is he is so much stronger than the devil that he says, hey, all that mess that you just created, watch how I'm going to slap you in the face with it. That very thing that you intended to hurt my people and to hurt my cause and my purposes, I'm going to use it to beat you up. We have this peace and this confidence. So I'm going to give a time right now. I'm going to pray to wrap up this message. Our response to this can be a couple things. Number one, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to. If you can hear a message like this and say, I don't need the Holy Spirit in my life. I don't need Jesus. I can handle this on my own. If you're in that place where you're not sure about that, I would love to talk to you after service. 
And I'm not going to beat you over the head either, but I, I want to impart to you how important this is to not do battle alone. Because if you don't know Jesus Christ, make no mistake, you are alone on this battlefield. And it's just you. But if you want more than that, Jesus offers this salvation to you. And the Apostle Paul tells us it's just as easy as confessing that Jesus is Lord. You believe it in your heart and you say it out loud. Now, if you've heard me say this before, when Paul wrote that, confessing that, saying those words out loud was akin to a death sentence if the wrong person heard you say it. It was treason. That's why he said, say it out loud. It's that depth of commitment. It's very easily done, but it shouldn't be lightly done. We need to understand the gravity of what we're getting into. That's response number one, believe in your heart, confess. We have a prayer team in the back who would love to pray with you and help you understand what just happened or what your next steps are. We've got a book we can give you, all kinds of different ways we can help you, but it starts with your decision. And you can make that decision here today. Then we have communion, which we're gonna go into right now. The way that we do it here at this church at the crosses, we have juice and we have bread and crackers and you dip the bread or the cracker in the juice and you take it that way. You can serve yourself, serve your family there. Up front here, we have wine and the bread and crackers and Gabe and I would love to serve you up here. Let's do this. We always do this with thankful hearts for what Jesus did. But let's also do this in agreement. Like anybody who signs up, if you go into the military, you sign an agreement. And you say, not only do I agree with what you're doing here, but I'm making a vow to be a part of this. So if we take communion this morning, let's say that vow together that we, only, we not only want the salvation that Jesus offers, but we wanna take our place in his ranks. And we wanna help defeat the enemy. And by that, let the gospel of Jesus be known. Let's take it with that kind of thankfulness and that kind of resolve in our hearts. And then after the worship team plays a couple songs, I'll get up and I'll introduce baptism. Now, we've had nobody, as Pastor Gabe said, nobody has signed up officially for baptism this morning. But if you're here and you're feeling, I need to do that again. I either need to do it again to reaffirm my commitment to Jesus, or maybe it's your first time. If it's your first time, we can still do it. We've got towels and, and I've got a t-shirt for you to change into if you want. There's nothing more powerful than that spontaneous decision that yes, I don't wanna do it alone anymore. And before all of these people, I'm gonna make that decision right now. You are more than welcome to do that. And so during communion, after communion, if you need to change and you're planning on it, you can go change. If not, just come up and sit in front here and we'll know that somebody wants to, to be baptized and we'll do that during our service and then the worship team will dismiss you. So guys, I've gone way over my time. I appreciate your patience, and I hope you got something out of this. I wanna pray in closing before we go into communion. Father God, just seal these truths. Seal these truths. Anything that I said that was not truth from you, Lord, let it just fall aside like dust and just be gone. But those truths that came from your heart, let them find a place in our hearts. Let them find a place that will stir when we're faced with battles, when we're faced with that decision. Let that rise up and let us remember the words that were spoken here today. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
love you so much. And Father, we don't deserve your love, but you're such a good Father. And that's your heart for us. You love us so much that no matter what we do, God, you keep pulling us back. You keep drawing us in and saying, son, daughter, I love you so much. God, instill that in our heart that you are our way, you are our truth, and you are our life. We love you, Jesus. surrounding me let it break at your name and still call the sea to still the rage in me to still every wave at your name Jesus Jesus you make the darkness tremble Jesus Jesus, you silence fear, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus, call these bones to live, call these lungs to sleep once again.
Jesus, Jesus. 